Go ahead and uh, open up your Bibles to Luke 4. Luke chapter 4 is where we'll be. Luke 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 5, and then I'm going to read Deuteronomy as well. These are the words of God. And he, and he led, that's Satan, led Jesus up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered to worship you this day, and Um, Not because this is the only day we do so, but because together as your church, we have labored all week in service to you. And we ask now that um, in this gathering, you would strengthen us for yet another week of worship. So we ask that you would receive our worship, our work, our songs, our proclamation, our confession, and our prayer. In Christ's name and only in his name, amen. Amen. So this, uh, this week's message will be a one-off message, not a series, and I chose this title because of the centrality of what it represents. In view of the fact that worship is central um, to everything we do, it is without a doubt important that we understand what it means to worship God and how one should go about doing it. If it is true that we were created to worship, to bring God glory, and it very much is the case, then we must be certain about what it is and how to go about it. Now, before we talk about worship, though, I need to make sure that you understand what I mean by the last word in the title, God. When I say how to worship God, I'm talking about the only God, the true God, the the sovereign triune God of the Holy Bible. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So I am presupposing the triune God as revealed in His Word. So this is not an exercise in pantheism or panentheism, um, agnosticism, or generally vague deism. There are plenty of ways to go about worshiping the thousands of gods created by the hands of secular humanists. Um, you, you, do, uh, you can do false worship at Planned Parenthood. You can parade um, at the Women's March. And one can worship a god by appealing to vague notions of sentimentalism. It happens all the time, whether that's in Eastern meditation, um, all these other Hinduism, you name it. So th- but the point should be clear. Worship is everywhere. But what about true worship? What about biblical worship? Um, worship the triune God of the Holy Bible type of worship. Sadly, it is not found everywhere. It's not even entirely understood in the church itself, and so we must be sure to get the God part right um, before we dig into the worship part. 
And so we, and we need to do both of those things because our mission is to see to it um, that all people give their worship to the one true God. We want Fauquier County to worship the one true God. Everywhere from, um, from the mayor of our city uh, to, to the county commissioners, um, all the way down to, you know, the, the guy who's um, the cashier at the gas station. <laughs> we, we want everywhere and everywhere. And, and then we're not content with just the county. We want the state. So, you know, that's our, that's our game plan. So we want everyone to worship God. Instead of giving their worship to false, God, we, false gods, we want the Father, our Heavenly Father, to get, to get all of it, all of Christ for all of life. So it should be clear that worship, the worship of God, the triune God, the true God, is important. Um, it is directly tied to man's chief end, um, which as Reformed people, we know the answer to that. What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So worship is designed um, to demonstrate the godness of God in tangible ways here on earth and in all things. I'll say that again. Worship is designed to demonstrate the godness of God in tangible ways here on earth and in all things. So a lot, a lot of you read the book of Revelation and you see the, the, the angels praising God, holy, holy, holy. And, and so a lot of times we think of worship, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're just trying to figure it out, but in heaven we'll just worship forever. Well, heaven and earth are going to be one th- thing, and we're not just going to sing songs. Um, we will have jobs, and we will do things uh, in the new heavens and new earth, the fullness. We will serve God the way he had designed us to originally serve him. So it is not an overstatement to say that it matters more than anything then. Now, here's my particular definition, and it goes like this. Worship is the kingdom-fueled process of applying our faith to all of life, and thus we glorify the triune God. It's the kingdom-fueled process, so the key word process, it is a process, of applying our faith to all of life, and thus we glorify the triune God. So worship is awe-inspired faith and action. It's awe-inspired faith and action. It's a heart that has been arrested and captivated by God, which leads towards this humble obedience and love towards God and towards others, right? That those are the commands. So worship, worship views the pleasure of God more, as more important than the pleasure of man. So worship is thus God-centered, thus it is Christ-centered. Now, the text before us, I'm going to walk through this so you can make sure you have your Bible with, with you. The, the text before us gives us a clue as to what it means to worship God properly. The story goes like this, all right? to give you a little bit of background before we jump right into this, this scene with Jesus and, and the devil. Jesus was born. He grew up in his family, and around the age of 30, Luke tells us, his, his public, what we call his public ministry began. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, and immediately the Spirit of God anointed him and sent him off into the wilderness. So, now that means something. Uh, Jesus, he's not only identifying with Israel being baptized, uh, you know, Jesus had no sins to repent of, but his people did. And so he, he identified with them. But also Je- Jesus is himself rehearsing the story of Israel all over again because he is the true Israel. He is, he is reconstituting what it means to be the people of God. 
So at any rate, while in the desert, Satan came to tempt him. Now here in Luke, and the story is also in Matthew 4, though Matthew 4, Matthew changes the last two scenarios. He has them flipped in a different order than, than Luke, clearly taking liberty of emphasizing a different point. But here in Luke 4, Satan tempts Jesus. Satan tempts Jesus. Jesus, being extremely hungry, uh, fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, tends to do that. Um, uh, He's hungry, and he's first offered a shortcut by Satan. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Can Jesus do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's that powerful. Can he do that? But how does Jesus respond? Because he could have turned that into an In-N-Out burger, and it would have been fantastic. But how did he respond? He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Which is a quote from Deuteronomy 8.3. So that's the first temptation. The second temptation, which is what we're going to focus on, um, and I'll come back to it. It's found here in Luke 4, 5 through 8. And Satan shows Jesus, he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he offered to give it to, to Jesus. If only Jesus, though, what, here's the prerequisite, if only Jesus would worship, there's our word, worship him. Now, in what was clearly a false generosity, Jesus resisted. Yes, Jesus would get the nations, but the nations were not a gift that Satan could actually give to Jesus. Now, sure, he was the God of that age, Paul says, but that's in reference to the Old Covenant age. Um, which ended in AD 70. Um, So uh, Satan, in a sense, ruled the nations in darkness because of Adam's sin and fall in the garden. But the plan of Christ was to atone for the nations, defeat the devil, and get the nations from his father as a gift for his obedience. So think Psalm chapter 2. So Jesus responds to this temptation. It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6.13 that I read. So we'll come back to that. The third temptation. The third temptation cuts to the heart of Jesus' faith and trust in His Father, our Heavenly Father. Satan takes Him to Jerusalem, takes Him to the pinnacle of the temple, right on the edge, the high place, and He tells Him, if you are the Son of God, He says, throw yourself down from here. Because the angels can save him, and Satan twists Scripture to, to prove his point. So rather than trusting the Father with the cross, a necessity, which if he's going to get the nations, he has to trust the Father with the cross. Instead of doing that, Satan tells him to trust the Father with his free fall to the pavement. Jesus tells him that he shouldn't put God to the test. So the second temptation here in Luke, which is actually the last temptation in Matthew's account in Matthew 4.10, that's what I want to focus on. Notice that each of the statements here begins with the words, it is written. Jesus said every single time, it is written. Now this is no accident. Jesus, the Son of God, affirms the authority and binding nature of God's holy word. God's word is a law. Word. We say that often around here when we're referring to the Bible. It's a law word, which means it governs and it binds all creatures who are not God. Satan, who from the beginning has been in the business of trying to usurp God's law, and thus he tries to legislate his own, his lo- own law order. Satan, in this scene, he twists Scripture and he attempts to get Jesus to rebel against the Father. You, you should read that story as Satan 
trying to get the second Adam to do the same thing the first Adam did. So by saying it is written, Jesus affirms that the only source of true law is God. Now in Adam, men make their own laws and try to govern their own way. Look at America, that's what we're doing. We think we can solve problems by continuing to legislate. We think we can tax ourselves into prosperity. That we, that's how jacked up everything is. And that's because we don't care about God's law. But in, in King Adam II, men bow before Christ, who gives, um, who gives us his law, his, his law order, and then we are governed accordingly. But notice how Jesus handles the issue of worship here. And it's very much connected to the issue of law. Worship is tied to Christ's obedience to the Father as it pertains to the nations. That's the temptation here. Worship is tied to Christ's obedience to the Father as it pertains to the nations. As I said earlier, Satan wants to give a gift that didn't belong to him. Okay, that Aren't those the easiest gifts to give? Right, you, you could say to someone, hey, that house over there, I'll just give it to you. No, I don't own it. Um, in fact, someone else lives there. <laughs> but it's yours, you can have it. It's easier to spend people's money. Why is that? Why, if, if I said to you, you know, here's a thousand bucks, go spend it. Is that easier to do than spending a thousand dollars of your own money? Absolutely. Why? Why is it easier to spend someone else's money? Because it doesn't actually cost you anything, right? Economically speaking, you don't have to take a loss on it. That, that's a surplus that you have that you didn't even, it's not even your profit margin to work with. You just, it's money that you got from somebody else and you get to spend it. Think about that, economically speaking. Satan was trying to get Jesus to worship him and thus circumvent the cost of obedience to his father. That's the connection. Satan wanted him to take a shortcut. He offered a gift that it didn't cost him anything. It didn't matter because he didn't even possess it. In other words, Satan tempted Jesus with a shortcut. So instead of true worship, which comes with a cost, worship comes with a cost, Satan offered false worship. If the Son of God would have bowed down before Satan and paid homage to the devil, he wouldn't have been our Savior, he wouldn't have had an atonement, and we'd be dead in our sins. And instead of doing this, we should just, you know, do something else. Satan tried to remove the stumbling block of the cross, but Jesus insists that true worship is worship that belongs to God. So worship costs you something. Which is to say, all of that to say, Jesus identifies true and right worship with obedience to God's every word. Don't miss this. Worship. Jesus identifies true and right worship with obedience to God's every word. So here in, um, in Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.3, again, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Question, were the spies who went into the land the, the not good ones, we'll call them that, were they practicing that verse? You shall fear who? Only the Lord your God. Only Him. No, they were not. So the question then for us is, well, what is worship then? Now, I already gave you my definition, but I want you to see the words used here in Luke. So look at your Bibles. Look at verse chapter 4. Look at verse 8. 
and I'm going to explain this to you in a, a little bit of a technical way, but it'll make sense. The word that Jesus uses here for worship, proskuneo, is, comes from two words. You have pros, which is um, towards, and then kuneo, which is, um, it means to kiss. Towards and kiss. So to proskuneo is basically to bow down before someone, to pay homage to them, to pay respect to them, to submit to them, to obey them, to fear and revere them. So that idea is found in in Psalm 2, where the civil magistrates are warned to worship Christ or perish. So they are to serve Him, to rejoice in Him, to trust in Him, to bow down before Him. In other words, Christ has full and unending legislative authority. So to worship Him is, is to see this, to acknowledge it, to believe it, and to obey Him. So in this text, um, Jesus actually connects the, the uh, worship, proskuneo, um, and service, which was a different word, latro. Um, worship is basically this broader religious submission, you can call it, whereas service is the act of the worshiper. Those, that's the connection. So thus the requirement of all men everywhere. They must bow before Him, they must serve Him, and they must obey Him. So you might say, God doesn't just require worship, God demands worship. God demands worship. He doesn't just require it, He demands it. You shall serve the Lord only. You shall worship Him only. You shall fear Him only. So, (laughs) um, yes, we are being very narrow-minded here. (laughs) Worship... Um, allegiance to Christ is not optional. You don't come to Christ and, and, and keep, you know, kind of your own thing. So you might say from a passage like this, three quick things. One, well, worship uh, first must be biblical. It is written. It's got to be biblical. Um, second, it should be God-centered and therefore Christ-centered. Um, we are to worship God alone. And lastly, Worship is supposed to be an edifying thing. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 14. You remember the famous speaking in tongues passage? All of our worship is supposed to be this edifying thing for the body of Christ to encourage the body, to uplift the body. So you can have the first two elements of that, you know, biblical worship and Christ-centered worship. And then, and if there isn't this third aspect of edification, um, if the third isn't there, you may maybe you have a pompous attitude toward others, but if you do, it's just not going. It's not going to work. It's not worship, which means our worship should be clear, not foggy. It should be simple, not so elaborate that only the esoteric brainies get it right. It's it's not supposed to be up in the ivory tower. Worship is is here. It's accessible. It's low hanging fruit. Um, it's supposed to be understood. Wor- worship. True worship is not incoherent. So now, quite quite a few more things need to be said. We know from places like Romans chapter 1 that all men worship. All men worship. All men give their lives for some sort of God. So, like what happened to us at Planned Parenthood with the lady, you know, I'm not religious. Well, we don't believe you (laughs) because you just left the temple and we're pretty clear you have, you know, it's pretty clear that you have religious convictions. All men give their lives for some sort of God. The, the foundational principle for Cross and Crown Church there is no neutrality. 
So it's never whether people worship, it's, it's which God they worship. So all people fallen in sin, they have the impulse to, to worship and serve something or someone. Now for the unregenerate, Paul tells us that, that the unregenerate people, they worship and serve the creature, not the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Which means when men reject God, they use it as an opportunity to submit their resume and cover letter for the position, right? When men reject God, they, they throw away his transcendency, they throw away his supremacy, all of it. They view that then as an opportunity to draft a cover letter, submit their resume for the job. They want the job. So they see it as a job opening. So when you declare God dead like Frederick Nietzsche did, worship doesn't stop. It gets rechanneled. Now here's the thing. Sinful, rebellious men do not reject the idea of sovereignty and authority. They don't. You have a conversation with someone it doesn't matter how much of an atheist they are, agnostic, you name it, they don't reject the idea of sovereignty and authority. Instead, they reject God, follow the train of thought, they reject God as the sovereign authority and would much rather themselves be the sovereign authority. So all men worship, all men ascribe sovereignty to something. Now, it could be the false god of Islam, it could be the supreme state, regardless Ascription of glory to someone or something is an impulse that cannot be suppressed. It can't be suppressed. All men, all women, all peoples everywhere, they ascribe glory to someone or something, and it can't be suppressed. So men will drive themselves mad in pursuit of idolatry. But one thing is for certain, they will drive. They will do it. So this pursuit of idolatry stems from our rebellion in Adam, and it's deeply connected to Satan's rebellion and temptation with both Adam and his temptation with the second Adam. So all that to say, do we need right worship in the church today? Is that a thing that we need? Absolutely. No question about it. Evangelicalism evangelicalism has shipwrecked the worship boat, and we need to fix it. Now, one of the ways to fix it is to be setting some boundaries and properly understanding what we're talking about. So let's start with this. The prerequisite of worship is faith. You cannot worship God if you don't know God. You cannot worship God if you don't know God. As John 4 illustrates, God desires worshipers. But there's a qualification that Jesus gives the woman at the well. He desires worshipers who do it in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth. Which, which means, as the Bible teaches elsewhere, that whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, which could be a whole other message. But if that's true, and it is true, then we must be careful to distinguish those things which are of a true faith and those things which are of a false faith. So knowledge of God is essential. We're not praising a vague deity now, worship absolutely requires admiration. Um, it requires love. It requires honor. It requires reverence and fascination. But it also requires knowledge. And not, not the vague knowledge, the, the unclear epistemology you see floating around on our college campuses. It needs to be true knowledge, true faith. And if we're not careful, 
we can find ourselves talking about the sublime, the, this transcendent euphoria, totally and only emotional, and then, and then we do it all apart from Christ and all apart from His law word. And frankly, this is why evangelicalism is a disheveled mush of goo anymore. Worship is supposed to be this, this debilitating process. Just ask any person in Scripture who was confronted with the glory of God. When men experience God, they change, right? They don't stay the same. You don't driving driving along you know the highway this this past weekend and um, I feel like I've done a lot of driving lately but but you don't get hit by a Mack truck going 75 miles an hour and get out of it unscathed true worship the the kind of worship that longs to see God to experience God to serve God this worship is debilitating you you are left undone um which you know is all one basically we're saying this when men worship god as god and on his terms that being this faith for all of life man is free man is free when men worship other uh, men as god he's a slave so don't don't mistake what i'm saying here about the debilitation god doesn't leave you there god didn't leave isaiah there when he, in Isaiah 6, where he captured this vision of the thrice holy God. Um, he didn't leave him there. He then sent him out to preach to people who wouldn't even listen to him anyway. He, he was undone, yes. Then he was atoned for, and then he was sent out. But this sending out was, was on God's terms and conditions, not Isaiah's. Isaiah didn't have an experience with God in the throne room and do, you know, sort of do it off at a distance, sort of just gawking at God like you would look at a car accident, you know, in the corners, you know, slightly amused. That's not the scene. Isaiah, Isaiah was entirely undone. And after that, he was sent out. So when we talk about worship being this faith for all of life thing and it being on God's terms, that's a freeing thing. When we channel our worship elsewhere, we become slaves of other men and other institutions that were not elevated to be God. And here's where evangelicalism has, in large part, gone adrift. We, we funneled the whole worship thing down to music on a Sunday morning. That's what we've done. All right. If you don't hear somebody say, are you going to church? Are you going to worship? You should say, Oh, yeah, I've been doing it all day. <laughs> That's, and all this is why you'll see churches advertised with language like experience. Like, this is our worship experience. Come experience Easter at greatestchurchever.com. Not, not entirely throwing out the word. Experiencing God is good. It's a good thing. But churches try to reproduce the thing that only God can do. They try to reproduce the thing that only God can do. When God shows up, you're left undone. And, and that's, all that now is worship, they consider. But it's not, a passive, it's not a passive thing. Men do not need a bunch of helps in order to worship God. You know, I've heard these things. I swear to you, the lighting wasn't good this morning. I couldn't worship. You know, the speaker was talking about something I didn't understand or care for. I couldn't worship. You know, the one song they did, I don't really...
really like it. I couldn't, I couldn't worship. The chair wasn't that comfortable. My coffee wasn't as hot as it was earlier. So that really distracted me. I couldn't worship God that, that good today. Now, friends, this is, <laughs> this is man-centered loads of garbage. The only thing you need is what God prescribes for you. You need the Holy Spirit and you need truth. That's it. That's the type of worshipers God is looking for. He's not looking for the hippest band in the city. He's not interested in the dry ice and fog machines. All that is just a bunch of man-pleasing schlock. That's what it is. And let me tell you, I've lived through that war. (laughs) One time while preaching, I am not kidding you, the fog machine turned on in the middle of my sermon. (laughs) Poured out. Was preaching. <laughs> I could have thrown the dumb thing across the room, but that is part of the problem today. We cater to man's flesh, and we expect to, you know, we expect God to just bless bless our impish, half-witted attempts. So, in our worship, the type of worship that includes obedience in every area of life, we must be careful to guard against trying to do those things on our terms. We must not, out of the impulse of wayward hearts, devise ways to try and come to God and then ask Him for our, ask Him to bless our disobedience. Let me tell you the number one culprit for that right here. You want to hear it? What do we do most that's disobedient to God and then we ask Him to bless it? Public schools. Public schools. They teach humanistic worship, right? It's a worship service. It's eight hours of worship. And and then we ask God to bless our disobedience. We we put them on the I have I have a song, I called it the humanistic bus go, you know, the wheels on the humanistic bus go round and round. But we put them on the bus and we're sad about it because we miss them, but and then we pray God be with them. And we just feed them. We feed them to the state. Now, in all of this, I'm not saying that worship doesn't include our emotions. We're not like these stoic, you know, brain-only people. Isaiah Isaiah was feeling pretty emotional when he saw Christ. So the worship of God does include our emotions. Just go through, and even Jordan read it earlier, the book Psalm 51. Just read the book of Psalms and tell me that it's not worship. Tell me it's not emotional. But to say that worship is purely emotional, and thus it's detached from any material or physical things, is to reduce worship to a place that God does not permit. You know, if, if only the emotions are included in our worship, it's not a sign of maturity, but immaturity, frankly. And hence the modern church, the lights, the fire. The skinny jeans, you know, the hip pastors, all of that is just a sign of immaturity. It's immaturity. Milk dispensing infantile Christianity. That's what it is. Cheap, sentimentalized feelings that have just been churned up because, you know, the worship in his, his skinny jeans hit, the, you know, hit that part of your favorite song. When that happens... It, this is not equal worship. You, you can be feeling pretty emotional and be pretty far from God in that moment. In worship, all of life 
worship, there is a line that we must not cross. But that line is not arbitrary, and that line is not even something we get to come up with. The line is drawn, for example, in Psalm chapter 1. There is a line between those who would pursue righteousness like a tree planted by water, and then there are those who would pursue unrighteousness. They're scoffers. So here's, this is key. Worship is not morally neutral. Worship involves righteousness and justice. Um, it, isn't, it isn't ambiguous. There's no neutrality. We say that all the time, not even in worship. There, there's no neutrality. Now, there's something else we need to consider. We must also distinguish between worship that belongs to the individual and worship that belongs to the congregation. Now, there are some psalms where you will see the I format. I, 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 I. Still God-centered. It's a God-centered thing to say, I've sinned against you, woe is me, but God, you're good and you forgive me. Well, that sounds self-righteous. You've said I and me more than God. Well, no, not exactly. But then there are other Psalms and, and places in Scripture where it's this we thing, we, we, we together. When God called His church through the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, He, he, uh, he kept in balance the issue of the one and the many in worship. So th- this is key to understanding the covenant, the role of indiv- individuals, and the role of the collective bride of Christ as they express their worship. So it's not... It's not that our only worship is our corporate Sunday thing. Got to get that out of our heads. That's not the only aspect of worship. Um, It's not that the only worship is our individual thing. It's both. It's both. And the things we do throughout the week absolutely matter to the issue of worship, but they must also be seen in conjunction with what we do together on a Sunday, what we would call the Resurrection Sunday. Every week, the beginning of the new creation, it's, it's rehearsed, if you will. Now, so I, ho- I hope you see the larger view of worship that I'm arguing, arguing for um, here. Um, worship at work tomorrow, on Monday. Worship uh, in your home, uh, Wednesday night, when your family's eating a meal together and you're praying and, and so on. Worship while at a mill <laughs> on Saturday. Worship with the people of God on a Sunday. This, this really isn't hard We've made it very difficult. We've shot ourselves in the foot because we either have a truncated gospel or we think that fog machines are the answer. So, but, but, but since we've truncated this gospel and it's this me and Jesus thing, it's no wonder that the church at large thinks that Sunday is the only thing that matters. I mean, I, I've read the church growth manuals. I still have them. I probably need to use them for a fire sometime, but uh, I've read them, and it's all about how, first thing you need to do Monday morning, prep for Sunday. Here's how you lead your staff to prepare for Sunday to make this great experience. That, that's what it is. Now, exclusive Sunday-only worship is a concept foreign to Holy Scripture, all of life worship that manifests, manifests itself Sunday through Saturday is a concept the Bible knows. So if you think that you can discharge your responsibilities to the Creator on a Sunday and then give the rest of the week to yourself, you are self-deceived. And I would, I would argue this. I would argue that your worship on Sunday is a stench to God if Monday through Saturday is messed up. Amen. 
And I'm convinced that God hates the worship of most, most churches in this nation. Hates it. He hates it because we have a holocaust happening in our midst, and the church does not care. We're driving along in north of Philadelphia, and we're driving by this mega church, and it's in July. The series is at the movies. You've seen it. It's been a trend in the large church world for years, where you pick a movie that's hot, you know, Avengers, and maybe the pastor will come out and dress like Thanos. I don't know, but and and it's stupid. <laughs> I think God hates it. Read Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah one. He hates it. Why? Because we've neglected the weightier matters of the law, and we don't care. And I can hear, I can already hear the objections already. Well, well, I guess we should stop going to church. Well, you need to reframe that whole question anyway. But I would say, yeah, you need to stop going, start being. Well, that's over-simplistic. You're exaggerating things. Well, no, no, I assure you, I assure you I'm not. This whole situation, worship has been boiled down to mere emotions, which means that we have rejected the outward in an effort to focus on the inward. And I'm not saying it doesn't include the inward. Don't misread this. Worship should always come from a disposition of disillusionment. Disillusionment, not because we find out that God isn't as good as we thought, but because we aren't as good as we thought. God is pleased with our worship when we are displeased with our sin. And I'm not talking about just, you know, the respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges called them. You know, the the sin of gossip and some of the things that we just sort of let slide. I'm talking about any, any sin, any transgression of the law of God. We have to be displeased with that. That's the disillusionment. And, and that's why, it kind of was a running joke, but that's why you could, you could um, almost guarantee that on a Sunday morning, um, there, there are several spouses who fought in the car on the way there. Right, and then they, then they sing. And I'm not saying, I mean, it happens. Sometimes the kids, you know, it's a rough morning. <laughs> that's why you can stand there and you can sing the lyrics and your heart is so stinking far from God that it's a joke. Because worship isn't just this inward how I feel in the moment when that certain chord is played and he holds the note and I just feel great. True worship in spirit and truth is when a man, woman, or child is entirely arrested by the glory of God. That's what it is. Entirely arrested in every part of his life. Plans, prayers, aspirations, and desires inside your heart and outside it. So in saying spirit and truth, God has taken the matter of worship away from the hands of rebellious, untrustworthy men, and he placed them squarely in, on, on the spirit and his word. So thus, again, worship is on God's terms, not ours. So yes, how you feel about God and how you feel about the person sitting next to you is very important. The... the that is the two great commandments, right? God, others, the vertical, horizontal thing. But we can't erode it down to nothing but your feelings when that keyboard hits the right note. Worship, which is ascribing worth and value 
and honor to the triune God is about the whole of man. And when our worship happens the way God desires, out of that, our work for Him and our service to Him follows suit. So, dear church, we must rejoice. We, must re- we need to be re- a people of rejoicing. To rejoice in God is to be victorious and experience victory. Um, rejoicing is not intended to be something that winds up being somewhat of a downer. I, I hope you like our Sunday gatherings. I hope you enjoy it. The fellowship time afterwards, and it's, it's, it's good to be together. It just is. Um, but re- rejoicing in worship, this all-of-life worship, rejoicing in worship in God is this triumphant jubilation. And <laughs> here's the thing. Sometimes rejoicing in God requires holding the severed head of Goliath up high. <laughs> it has nothing to do with music. David went to battle, killed the giant, cut off his head, and said, what's up? Like, that's worship. That's obedience. And that's the type of worship we need, the type of worship that takes every emotion, every feeling, every desire, every thought we're supposed to take captive, right? And um, every action, every motivation, and it wraps it up inside the gospel of the kingdom, and it finds its rest in there, it finds its purpose in there. And so I think of Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God, right? Sometimes... Sometimes it's fighting in the battle, right? It's, it's, um, it's evangelism. It's frontline ministry. It's confronting um, the abortionist. It's, you know, it's confronting these things. So sometimes, it's, sometimes worship is on the battlefield. But you know what else? Sometimes worship is on the beach relaxing. It's all of Christ for all of life, right? That's how, that's how we worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have assembled as your church um, because you have curated an army on this earth to advance for your glory. You have called us to disciple the nations, and we hereby repent for divorcing your calling on our life from the concept of worship. We long, Father, for your Son's name to be held high as a banner of truth in this nation. We have sinned enormously in the past, and we continue to run ourselves headlong into more of it. We need your spirit to grant us forgiveness and move us towards greater worship in spirit and in truth. So help us, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.